Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I am talking to David Adler of Progressive International about the recent first round of elections in Colombia and what we can expect from the upcoming second round of elections. Um, thank you as always to all of our amazing patrons who make the show possible. Uh, thank you if you've already signed up to be a patron but if you haven't please do consider doing so. We really need your support to keep bringing you the show. You can find us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. Please do also consider sharing this episode and other episodes that you like on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you as always to all of our loyal listeners and here is a quick word from our sponsor. The Socialism Conference is back. The largest socialist conference in North America returns from the 2nd to the 5th of September in Chicago and registration is now live. Join hundreds of other activists, organisers, abolitionists and socialists for four days of discussion and debate about radical politics, history and strategy. Participate in panels, lectures and workshops on unionism, police and prison abolition, black feminism, reproductive justice, working class internationalism, capitalist crises, tenant organising, Palestinian liberation and much more. Speakers at Socialism 2022 will include Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, David Harvey, Harsha Walia, Derecka Purnell, Olufemi Taiwo, Kim Kelly, Mohammed El Kurd, Anand Gopal, Sophie Lewis, and many more. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Register before July 8th for the early bird discounted rate. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I'm here with David Adler, who has just come back from a trip to Colombia with his organization, Progressive International, where you were monitoring. Were you the official monitors of the elections, David? Is that what you were doing? Well, we can get into that in terms okay. of how Colombian law does or does not encourage international observation. But yes, I was there with a good crew of observers, informal and formal, accredited and unaccredited. I'm sure we'll get into it. Great. Okay. Well, let's just start by talking about what's going on. So where are we now? Who won in the first round? And what does that tell us about what's likely to happen in the second round? I think there are three main blocks that were contending in the first round and I think are relevant. Their, their combination or failure to combine, I think, is relevant to making sense of the second. So the three main blocks. The first block, most relevant to your listeners, is led by the tickets of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. Gustavo Petro, former mayor of Bogota, former guerrilla, urban guerrilla fighter of the M19 that led to the 1991 constitution in Colombia, uh, a progressive, but an anti-extractivist progressive who wants to move beyond fossil fuel extraction to create a kind of new anti-oil block in the region, uh, as well as kind of standing up for these principles of feminism, ecologism, democracy, social democracy, and has a few social welfare programs like taking care of elderly people, free education for young people, taking care of mothers in particular. And his ticket partner, his VP candidate, Francia Marquez, winner of the Goldman Prize for her heroic work um, organizing against transnational mining and other extractive industries, in Colombia, the first Afro-Colombian and feminist to be anywhere close to this level of power, a really inspiring figure more generally. So that's the progressive block under the banner of what's called the Pacto Historico. I know I'm throwing a lot of words out there, but it's kind of critical to understand that block as having already priced in, already built in a lot of unity on the left between everyone from 
opportunist conservatives to uh, left-leaning liberals, all the way towards uh, the campesi- radical campesino uh, peasant and, and, and workers movements who are have come together under the banner of this historic pact that ran together in the legislative elections and is now backing the Francia Marquez Gustavo Petro uh, ticket. So that's the progressive block. Then there is the second block, the conservative establishment block. Even calling them conservative establishment makes me hesitate. Makes me feel hesitant because these are the the Uribistas um, who are still headed from the behind the scenes by former president Uribe. These are the people who are like most hardline U.S. aligned, pro paramilitary, arm the countryside, kill the guerrilla fighters. You know the most deeply corrupt, mostly deeply uh, entwined with and in bed with narco-trafficking paramilitaries uh, across the country. That's the Uribista, right? And they had their candidate, Fico Gutierrez, kind of smiling, smarmy candidate with not even a drop of charisma that ran in the first round. And the third block is represented by this candidate known as Rodolfo Hernandez, who is a, he wants to present himself as a kind of business magnate, whatever, has a construction company with offshore holdings. Forgive me if this sounds a bit typical of 21st century politics in, even in our advanced democratic world, but he was the former mayor of a small town known for his like hot temper and anti-system politics. So he's a bit kaleidoscopic in terms of his politics. It's clear that he's pro-business, he's kind of anti-welfareist, but he's super anti-corruption. Um, and his politics is very, I mean, very Latin American in the sense that it's super TikTokified. His primary channel for communicating with supporters has been through his TikTok. He's refused to attend any presidential debates, still does, uh, but has instead chosen to have this kind of hyper-personified uh, depiction of himself. And we can get into what the consequences of that particular presentation are. But just to give your set, readers a set, sorry, listeners rather, a sense of what happened in the first round. The first round, those three blocks split the majority of the vote. Petro got his 40.1%, uh, sorry, 40, 40.5%. Fico Gutierrez got about 23%. And Rodolfo, that TikTok random anti-establishment character with no program, no real profile, no record that people really understood, uh, got 28%. I mean, just a whopping percentage of the vote. So now we move into the second round with just these two, uh, two candidates left, Petro and Rodolfo Hernandez. And the question is, how much are the two remaining candidates going to be able to call on the conservative establishment, going to be able to call on more disaffected voters? How much is, are those extra days that are leading us up to the second round on 19 June going to matter for the way in which the vote splits between the two candidates that remain? So why do you think that this ended with, well, the first round ended with such a kind of emphatic defeat for Uribismo? Because this wasn't expected, was it? No, it wasn't expected. I mean, I think it's crucial to be honest about the strength of the, Uribe, the Uribista vote. I mean, that is 23% is small for sure, but it is, that's a hard vote. That's a doodle. That's a, that's, you know, that's a, that's a loyal block comes from large parts of the country. But why did it not win a higher percentage? I think that, because, I mean, frankly, you know, um, there is a, a question about anti-incumbency in general in the post-COVID era. Very difficult to find examples of where incumbents or at least the political tendencies of incumbent parties and politicians actually held on to power in a post-COVID period, in particular after this Duque government, which was so disastrous, right? So Fico Gutierrez, this Uribista candidate, was supposed to be inheriting the presidency from Ivan Duque, um, who many of your listeners will remember, was responsible for, you know, he basically in 2019 introduced these horrible austerity measures to try to get Colombia in line for its foreign creditors. 
And that kicked off a huge uprising across the country uh, that he cracked down on with an iron fist leading to several deaths and, and um, you know, maiming protesters by police violence, uh, severe violations of human rights under his government. And so that weakened his popularity a lot, of course, with many of the bases that were more you know, open to voting left. But I think just gave the impression of mismanagement, of corruption, of the inability to kind of get things together. And, you know, in the waning days of the Duque presidency, now he's being ordered by a uh, sort of supreme tribunal court at the regional level to be sent into house arrest for failing to regard an important judgment on the protection of flora and fauna in a big national park in Colombia. So this government has been riddled with scandal, mismanagement. And I think that Fico was, you know, um, (laughs) I don't want to be too generous to him, certainly suffered as a result of 20 years of Uribista management and all of the violence, complexities, and, and, and scandals that come along with two decades of, of governing from the conservative establishment right. So before we talk a little bit more in depth about uh, the two candidates who've made it to the second round, can we talk a bit about the issues that have dominated the campaign so far? So what did Colombians go into this election with as their kind of like number one issue that people were really caring about or several most significant issues that people were caring about? How's that shifted over the campaign and what are going to be the issues that are likely to dominate this second round? So three issues that come to mind when thinking about what's on the agenda. And I want to be clear that some of those issues are kind of anti-issues in a way, right? Because we have this anti-system candidate that has not filled out the programmatic vision in a way that we would understand to be kind of sufficient in terms of motivating people by the issues. One of those is the peace accords. So in 2016, after a long, long civil war, you might say, uh, in Colombia, they signed peace accords that effectively dismantled the FARC um, and brought them to the negotiating table to think about how they were going to transition from being an armed guerrilla group to being a more formal and established political party that was you know, using peaceful means to contest for political power, which then happened. They're called Comunes. That's the former FARC political force in Colombia. But immediately after signing those accords, the, the peace movement was not just abandoned, but kind of moved in reverse. So removing the FARC from large parts of the countryside had the effect of creating a vacuum of governance in those places. The government did not lead with trying to create lasting, durable peace, which of course can only come with lasting and durable social justice in those parts of the countries. And so what happened is right-wing paramilitaries filled a lot of that void, came in, you know, just massively accelerated cocaine or coca production, um, were extremely violent to the peasant communities uh, around, you know, killing and disappearing lots of social leaders who were trying to get organized to represent their communities against the violence of the paramilitaries. And so there was just, you know, an escalation of violence that in, uh, we can observe in the past couple of years in, in particular. Uh, and so one of the major issues on the ballot is about restarting peace talks and what peace would actually look like. And Petro in particular puts a heavy emphasis on life change for life, life force. So really, it's a politics of life. And that brings us to the second main issue, which is about extraction. So when Petro talks about life, he both means the peace accords, defending people's lives as they are, right? He means defending people's lives in terms of the quality of their lives. So as I mentioned, he has those kind of key pillar reforms around reducing poverty and taking care of of older and whatever vulnerable populations. Uh, But the second main area for life is about extraction. Uh, Petro wants to phase out 
oil extraction set a 12-year timeline for Colombia getting off of fossil fuels entirely, but until then, uh, ending fracking immediately uh, and move towards a more sustainable Colombian economy, um, you know, with ideas around uh, crop um, rotation and, and ending coca production and replacing it with marijuana production, legalizing marijuana production. Anyway, he has a whole plan for how um, Colombia can move ahead with uh, becoming a post-extractive uh, economy with a different model of development. And he's been attacked ferociously for it as being anti-developmentalist, as being incapable of, you know, uh, shepherding or managing, leading Colombia's national interests because he's so uninterested in this. Um, and of course, has earned the ire of lots of fossil fuel corporations who are very concerned about their interests in the country. That's number two, peace, number one, two, extraction, and number three is corruption. Now, the politics of anti-corruption are extremely complicated, as your listeners will know. And oftentimes, it's we've seen in the region, it's a kind of faint or a Trojan horse, rather, for a vicious right-wing politics because they claim that you know corruption is kind of inherently linked to social spending, right? So the austerian approach kind of comes out of an anti-corruption politics because the idea is that if the state is spending, that means the state is robbing and you know our tax dollars are... Uh, filling the pockets of our politicians. We saw that in the case of Jair Bolsonaro in particular, but we've seen it lots of times across the region. Uh, and, but there's no doubt that there's loads of corruption. Now, the irony of the of the anti-corruption candidate, Rodolfo Hernandez, being the flag bearer for that anti-corruption politics is that he himself is under investigation for corruption. Um, and it really does seem likely that he's guilty of that. But, you know, Colombia is a place uh, where there's a lot of money that moves through politics. Um, a lot of patronage and clientelism, tons of vote buying. I mean, there's a whole vocabulary to describe how votes get purchased and recycled and, um, you know, how fraud is basically institutionalized. So I don't want to underplay the extent to which corruption is a problem and does stand in the way of a more programmatic, honest politics with integrity and social democratic character. But it's obviously being weaponized from a certain position, quite cynically, to talk about, oh, you know, uh, from Adolfo's perspective, oh, you know, Petro wants to spend all this money. That's just a way for him to kind of, you know, give handouts to all these people. You know, I'm a businessman. I don't need any money. I'm not going to spend any money. I'm an austerian because I earned my money. Working is the only way to get money. Social spending is, you know, a, a basically uh, a giant corruption scheme to earn the cheap loyalty of uh, the people. Okay, so where did um, Rodolfo Hernandez Suarez come from? What is his political background? How did he um, kind of rise to prominence during this campaign? Um, and where's his primary support coming from if it's not the kind of traditional right slash center right? You know, I'm still asking myself those same questions. I don't totally know who the, this guy is and few people really do. I mean, we do know he was a mayor uh, and that he did, I mean, an okay job, I guess, managing his municipality. There's not tons of scandal that came out of that period. Um, but he had a construction company. And again, he came to prominence a way a lot of these right populists or right authoritarian populists do through social media and through making this hard pitch to disaffected voters who were going to vote right anyway. It's not clear that he's peeling lots of votes away from the left or whatever social democratic candidates as much as he is you know, um, speaking to middle class, lower middle class voters about why, you know, we need to kind of fight against this political establishment and um, reclaim a kind of you know, popular politics. And I think 
the tragic irony is that people are calling him, you know, the Trump of the tropics, another one of these Trumpian figures or whatever, lots of little Trumpian phrases. And certainly a lot about him suggests Trump. But I think that for his base of supporters, that is not off-putting at all. That is quite motivating, in fact, to vote for um, a Trumpian character. You know, the idea that there would be, you know, because of there's a longstanding alignment of Colombian and U.S. American, not just interests, but political tendencies and even political characters, the idea that, you know, the Colombian right would be mirroring the U.S. right and elevating a Trumpian figure to power, I don't think makes a lot of Colombians feel out of step with the times, but makes them feel precisely that they're, you know, participating in an international dynamic in which there's a lot of pride invested. If Trump isn't the best analogy, then is a kind of Bolsonaro analogy better? Like, who is this guy like, if he is like anyone? Or is he just kind of, you know, completely come out of the blue? Yeah, I think he's like a poor Berlusconi. The reason why he's not like Jair Bolsonaro is because Bolsonaro was deeply, deeply embedded in in the political system, right? He was from a far fringe of it, but he was a creature of the Brazilian political system and spent a long time in Congress. You know, you look at back at a lot of his speeches, he knew everyone and everyone knew him in this way. And he was an apologist for the... Um, uh, for the military dictatorship and had close ties, or at least was trying to build those close ties with the armed forces and like neo-Nazi movements in Brazil, right? So this was a, he was a known entity, even if no one could have seen that, that particular spread of loyalties and associations would grant him access to the highest annals of power. Whereas Rodolfo's not really that. No one really knows who he is or what he stands for. He's an unknown quantity in that way. And he doesn't have like um, those relationships, right? So there's a couple of proposals that make Rodolfo a kind of idiosyncratic character in Colombian politics. One is that contra the longstanding commitment of the Uribistas to go even further than the gringos in their dis- hatred for Venezuela, right? There's nothing you can say in Colombian politics that is as toxic as you, know, you were with Maduro, right? But Rodolfo wants to reestablish diplomatic relations with Venezuela, really riling up the Uribe, Uribe establishment for whom this was such a red line. He wants to restart peace talks with the ELN, um, another guerrilla group that had leftist origins and has kind of become more associated with a lot of narco-trafficking and violence. He wants to end fracking. Now, the Petro camp would claim that that last piece is, in particular is craven opportunism to cribbed from his political program. But my point is that like this guy is making this populist gesture that is like, let me just occupy a huge portion of the political spectrum, right? I'm going to be vague. I'm going to be incoherent. And I'm not afraid of being vague and incoherent. I figure if I make enough gestures in enough different directions, and I kind of bring that into my 90-second TikTok, um, then I can play towards all these different communities, right? I just you know talk about how much I love the poor and then talk about how much I love business, and I pretend yeah. that there's no there's no contradiction there. And I think that you know there's a whole separate conversation that you and I could have that I've been having with friends and allies across the region about the TikTokification of politics in Latin America, because I don't think it's something that can be contained there. You know, Latin America is has often been continues to be a laboratory, you know, I think Greg Granite calls it uh, Empire's Workshop, but it's also it's like this laboratory for certain democratic dynamics that inevitably leak upwards 
you know, Alex has called this the Brazilianification of the world. But I think in many ways, looking at TikTok, as I've seen places like Ecuador and Peru and now in Colombia, this really, um, not toxic, but really potent and dangerous technology that, you know, has very little content politically, but has all this image and presentation mm. that ends up being this really powerful vehicle. So we're seeing another test of the conflict between traditional media where Petros and the Oribistas are much stronger. Newspapers, I mean, newspapers are super consolidated and controlled by the establishment right, uh, but Petro has strong connections to uh, all the kind of left and alternative media um, and social media where Rodolfo has really been able to find a foothold and speak to a lot of young people in particular who are excited about this candidacy in a way that we've seen in other parts of the world. And the left is falling behind, is it, when it comes to social media? I mean, I certainly think that that's true in much of the rest of the world and particularly on TikTok. Like I recently joined TikTok and recently just started putting videos on there. And A, it's fascinating to engage with it and to see, as you say, how kind of surface level this stuff is. You've literally got like two seconds to make an impact on people and they will go from watching your video, it says one thing, and then someone else's that says a complete opposite thing and then like both of them. Um, but, and the left hasn't been very good at that, but the right has. Is that like also a similar dynamic as as what's happening in Colombia? Like the left is kind of yeah. I think these I think it's fair. Yeah. You know, there's so much asymmetry in in terms in terms of how the left and the right can engage with these technologies because we have different projects. The right thrives on entropy and chaos, and we thrive on discipline and architecture and programming. Mean, these are things are just different. Um, they require different things. Um, I'm personally terrified of the idea that anyone would form a political attachment or even or loyalty uh, based on a TikTok. I mean, that's that's really, really wild to me. And I don't think that we should, on the left, this is, again, a separate conversation that we could have over a much, much longer period with a much richer debate. But I'm I'm wary of an approach from the left that says, you know what, that's all, that could be our terrain as well. Do you think, though, that, th- that this has been the foundation of an enduring loyalty or something that has shaped voters during a particular campaign. A hundred percent, the latter, right? And I okay. think this is this is this is what feels so scary, but also so sad about that particular moment, right? That these you know elections are these truly pathetic, weak, and temporally vulnerable moments in time, right? So especially when the electoral institutions are so weak, and you think, oh my god, if they just pull off a little bit of fraud here and there. They could steal this election. We see stolen elections all across the region. And in the case of Colombia, we don't even know if they're going to steal it because the, the private company that's running the software for the vote count refuses to let our auditors look at their code because of claims of intellectual property rights. I mean, <laughs> the whole thing is like completely absurd uh, and infuriating, right? So there's, there's these moments in time that are supposed to capture the popular will as well as represent it in some way. And of course, give power, huge institutional powers to the victors. And yet they're vulnerable to these disinformation campaigns, they're vulnerable to these highly sporadic and and manufactured, confected moments that can happen on social media. And the idea that like, you know, those flash frozen coalitions that come out of watching a lot of TikToks would then be the one that guides this kind of decrepit old man into power, I think is really, really scary to me, but also says something really important about the feeble nature of, you know, electoral contests to mm. basically give voice to uh, the needs of, of the people. 
what you would kind of expect, I guess, ordinarily is for there to be some, uh, you know, a, a level of coherence to any of these contexts based on some sort of loose class coalition that emerges around one or two candidates. And you would have expected that to have been kind of, you know, Uribismo versus the left or something, or maybe against the far right. But that brings to mind the question of where capital is, where Colombian capital is, where kind of the international financial press is in this contest. If they don't have an obvious horse in this race, where are, you know, the forces that be going to fall in line? Where is, uh, you know, the elites of, of Colombia and indeed of the rest of the world? Who are they going to be backing? It's a question that has such profound theoretical implications. The, the, the empirical answer to that question has ramifications that reach back, you know, into a hundred years of socialist debate. Because the question is, does capital prefer a stable and programmatic social democratic settlement that Petro's offering, right? He's already been forced to say publicly on stage, I will not expropriate your property. And if anything, the line really is that not the social democrats, but it was Duque, it was Uribistas that were all about expropriation, right? For their 5G projects, for all these, and you know, for, you know, basically they, they were huge expropriators in the end. But anyway, I digress. The social programs that Petro is talking about you know, whether it's support for students or support for mothers or support for old people, the infrastructure project he's talking about in terms of the ecological transition, are those so threatening to the interests of international capital, right? Shouldn't they be able to say, okay, this is a country in the course of tremendous upheaval. This guy's promising to heal some of those wounds and he's not making us a bad offer. I don't think, I don't think that in a petro government, that's why we call it the pink wave, not a red wave, there is that much of a threat, not least because he doesn't have a majority in Congress. He can't just legislate his way towards a Bolivarian revolution. I mean, this is both the offer and the, the arithmetic in Congress guarantee that the most government really can do is make some social democratic reforms. So is capital going to accept that bargain, accept that settlement? Or is capital going to say, you know what, fuck it. You know, we prefer the chaos and the entropy that comes with this because we can smuggle our interests uh, into the empty box that is Rodolfo Hernandez, and we'll make it work, right? We, we can find a way into that settlement. And actually, our biggest risk is not time one settlement that Petro might, might inaugurate, right? It's not our issue of Petro winning in June. The issue that we would have is that would encourage, it would embolden a people to think that they have a right to a social democratic government. And who knows, at time two or three or four, we may end up with that Chavez-like government that was so uh, emboldened by their victory in 2022, that they sought a candidate who was going to go even deeper, going to capture even more of their opportunities for profit accumulation and expropriate property from them, even though Petro has promised not to. Right? So the answer to that question gets us to a really deep, which I'm not saying I have the answer to it, but we can start to see some of the shape of where capital is, is moving. I think the fact that Petro is not being attacked so much in the international press, the fact that the New York Times is writing glowing profiles of Francia Marquez, et cetera, shows the extent to which Petro has already back-channeled his way towards a lot of uh, kind of agreement with understanding from that class of international creditors and investors who are looking at Colombia and, and doing their risk analyses. But I think that, you know, insofar as the question, the answer to that question ultimately gives us some leverage to make sense of the the deeper theoretical questions about, you know, do we make those concessions or are we going to be screwed over by capital regardless, right? That's what we're going to see in the course of the next 
week and a half, two weeks ahead of the elections in the second round on 19 June, we're going to be able to see, you know, uh, is it ever worth us making those concessions to say, oh, we promise not to expropriate anything because they're just going to screw us over anyway? Shouldn't we take a more militant approach? Or to say, you know, it actually needs really deeply fragile context. Sometimes you have to make some concessions if you want to come to power and improve things for, for people in real time. And of course, you know, it's always easy to overestimate the extent of consensus among the very diverse blocks that make up this wider block that we refer to as capital. So there'll obviously be divisions and distinctions within that. The other thing I wanted to ask is, what about the US? Where, you know, has Biden said anything about this? Um, or is he too focused on, you know, what's going on in uh, his own backyard, as it were? Um is there anything still going on here in terms of, you know, the US wanting to have a secure candidate in power to support the war on drugs? Or is that kind of old news now? And it's just kind of whatever's going to be best for capital. So I think it's in the same way that you're pointing to diversity in the distribution of preferences and political alliances from the capital side. I think that you know, the US deep state in its vast architecture also has different and competing interests. Some of them are, you know, military. I think the military is on, on one side of this. And I think the Biden administration might be on another, but we can look to the kind of letter of the record to understand a bit about what they're doing. So not so, you know, the, the first thing that the gringos were doing really was hyperventilating and leaking to New York Times that what they're really concerned about, I kid you not, Grace, is Russian interference in <laughs> Columbia's election. You know, uh, no one, this is so, it's so beyond absurd. Of course, it was self-serving for an agenda that was far beyond the borders of Latin America. But the, if you look back at that New York Times piece, which essentially was just you know, some stenographer sitting down and writing what the CIA was telling them, uh, or state was telling them about, you know, we're afraid that Putin's going to support the le left-wing candidate Petro. Um, they were doing this for a long time. Um, and that all of a sudden, surprise, surprise, that concern has completely evaporated. There's no talk about Russian interference. I mean, totally crazy. But yeah, they were they were f freaking out about what a Petro government would look like um, and uh, issuing kind of, you know, Victoria Nuland, uh, who your listeners may remember, was super involved in the 2014 coup in Ukraine, um, basically dictating to the Ukrainians that, you know, I think she said, fuck the EU, and they were going to appoint their person to, you know, take over in the course of the, of the 2014 series of events in Kiev. But um, she came down to Colombia and like, met with all the presidential candidates except for Petro. You know, I think there's been a hard slant against this. And that's because, uh, and, and then we've seen that escalate towards election day. The week before the election, uh, Colombia's Ministry of Defense went to Washington and signed a new set of accords on uh, deepening military cooperation between the United States and Colombia. The six days before the election, Joe Biden uh, announced recognizing Colombia as a, a, a major non-NATO ally. You know, what is the U.S. doing making these huge announcements of military cooperation days before an election? They're obviously trying to kind of hem in a new administration around a new set of agreements around military cooperation, right? The military really can't afford to lose Colombia. Colombia is the crown jewel of U.S. empire in the hemisphere of the Monroe Doctrine. It's the place where, to no one's surprise, you know, that uh, failed coup, Guaido coup was launched from Colombia, right? It's the training ground for a lot of the mercenaries and political tendencies that the U.S. wants to see destabilize in the region. And it's not a surprise to anyone that when Blinken went down to South America recently, uh, Anthony Blinken is our Secretary of State, 
Uh, one of his first stops was in Bogota to say, you know, you are such a brave defender of human rights uh, after what he did, uh, cracking down on protesters and killing them and overseeing uh, massacres over 50 social leaders in this year, this year alone. And you're our most important ally in the region. So there are real concerns about what that relationship might look like. And certainly when I went, met with Petro in Chile for the inauguration of Gabriel Boric, when we were talking about the war in Ukraine, he was telling me, you know, that, that the position of the whole region needs to be a kind of non-aligned position, uh, more solidarity within the bloc uh, and refusal to get involved in the kind of high inter-imperial and geopolitical conflicts kicked off by the United States and its, its adversaries the world over. So I think that there's some concerns about, about that. Um, but again, I don't think that um, this is an existential threat. This is not a revolutionary government. This is not one that's taking a hard anti-imperialist line. Uh, I don't think that we, you know, so again, we come back to the question that I was raising before, Grace, like this guy is a social Democrat promising moderate reforms and the reinitiation of a peace process in Colombia. Is that, is that moderate social democratic position still going to kick off like an imperial freak out from the hegemon who's going to do everything it can, do everything it can to kind of crush it and send an example to its neighbors? Or is it going to say, you know what, actually that settlement is more stable and we're talking about the importance of democracy as, you know, against a rising autocratic axis or whatever. And so we're going to accept and even maybe uh, support that, that new settlement. Uh, and I think that that remains to be seen. And you'll forgive me and your listeners will give me for a bit of skepticism about whether the U.S. is even ready to accept a social democratic mm. Latin America based on how we saw it react to the first pink tide 15 years ago. And when is the next round of voting going to take place? On 19 June is the next round of voting, the final round of voting in the Colombian presidential election. And I would say it's a 50-50 shot right now. Um terrifying to think about, but also really hopeful that Petro campaign has been able to kind of keep up speed and reclaim some vote share and really put themselves in a position to be at 50-50. So fingers crossed, toes crossed, and breath is being held as we await that vote on 19 June. Cool. Well, thank you so much, David, for joining me to discuss this. Um, Is there anything you want listeners to know about what you and Progressive International have been doing in Colombia or anything that they can do to kind of support your work or um, just, yeah, like, you know, figure, like learn about what's going on in Colombia more generally. Absolutely. Yeah. The Progressive International has an electoral observatory that we launched back in November, seeing the ways in which electoral observation, an issue that we didn't get much time to spend on, but, you know, these questions about defending a democratic process from fraud, intervention, and violence are really critical. We found that they've been a really important tool, and we're in the first round a very important tool to defending the transparency and integrity of these elections. So that's entirely member-funded, supporter-funded, friend-funded through small donations from people just like you, your listeners, of uh, two quid, five quid, two, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever it may be. And that goes all the way towards supporting our delegations, bringing parliamentarians, trade unionists, activists, and electoral observers to the country to help ensure that transparency and keep you up to date. So if you want to support us, you can go to progressive.international and you should sign up to our newsletter there so we can keep you up to date about all things related to the observatory. And so you can have inside information, really up to information and can sound cool in front of your friends and family (laughs) speaking about all that you know of Colombian politics. Thanks for having me, Grace. Thank you.